Well, I so appreciate Krista's story, um, and it fits in perfectly with what we want to talk about this morning in our series on gratitude. You know, is gratitude even possible when, when everything seems lost? Many of you have heard of the game called um, Worst Case Scenario. Some of you have played this game. It was based upon the books that came out a number of years ago by Josh Piven and David Borgenicht. And the idea is simple. You're presented with a common disaster scenario, like how to survive a poisonous snake bite or an elephant stampede, if you've ever had one of those things happen to you. Well, how to jump from rooftop to rooftop. And then the authors who apparently had researched all of this will tell you how to survive. So the book came out, it became very, very, uh, uh, like 10 million in sales, and the spinoff books came out like worst case scenario, man skills. Worst case scenario, survival handbook of travel. I know some of you have heard your travel experiences, maybe you could have used that. Or the worst case scenario, weddings book. Uh, and then, you know, Bear Grylls became the, the guy on TV who would tell you how to handle worst case scenarios, and I really appreciated. Uh, I love Bear Grylls' accent and his ability to make you feel calm in the midst of a crisis. So my question for you is, why do you think the books, the game, and the TV series became so popular? Well, I think the reason why is because all of us can envision our worst case scenario. In fact, envisioning a worst-case scenario is a way that we in the modern world stay in control. Because if we can envision the worst that could possibly happen, and then it does happen, we can say, see, I knew that would happen, and I'm in control. I'm in control because I knew this would take place. It's a way of staying in control. Catastrophizing is a way of staying in control. But sometimes the worst case scenario does happen. And when it does happen, the question is, does gratitude apply in those times? We know that gratitude is biblical. We know that gratitude can lift our mood. We know it can delight our soul. But does gratitude really apply when the absolute worst circumstances take place? Why would you express gratitude during those times? What would the point be? Well, the Bible records two Old Testament prophets who encountered a worst-case scenario. Those prophets were Habakkuk and Jeremiah, and they described their worst-case scenario, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. And they manifest an amazing level of gratitude. And so the idea is that gratitude is possible when all seems lost if certain things are present. So I want to tell you the story of these two prophets and what they encountered, and then we'll look at um, some stories of people today who encounter this, and we'll close with some takeaways. So here's, how the, sto- here's the story. One day during a time of great crisis, God predicts to Habakkuk a devastating worst-case scenario, and we see this in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear me? Or cry to you violence and you do not save? So here's an interesting prophet. He was was in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Josiah. He probably was there when Josiah dies and then evil King Jehoiakim comes to the throne. So Josiah was a great king. 
He ruled for a long time. And there was a great revival and renewal during the time of Josiah. But Josiah becomes complacent in his old age. And he begins to slide. And Josiah's son, King Jehoiakim, comes to, the phone, comes to the throne. This guy is as bad as he can possibly be. If any prophet confronts evil King Jehoiakim, he is tortured, he is jailed, he is killed. And Habakkuk, who's seen the good times, is now seeing the trends moving toward the bad times. And Habakkuk, the prophet, is crying out to God, saying, God, will you please intervene and do something? Maybe some of you have seen what's happened in our country, and you've prayed the same kind of prayer. God, will you please send some sort of a revival to our nation? But it doesn't seem as if God is answering Habakkuk's prayers. And so on this particular day that we read verse 2, you know, he's saying, Lord, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you're not here? How long shall I cry violence and you will not save? So God now answers his prayer in verse 5. And God says this, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. I want you to wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I think at this point, maybe Habakkuk is, being, is kind of encouraged. Like, great, some sort of a surprise solution. God, what are you going to do? I can't wait to see what is about to take, to take place. He's ready for God's surprise solution. But it does not come the way he expects. Because he says, behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were also known as the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were led by King Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful king who rises up the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Whenever I read the word hasty, I think of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I think of Treebeard, who's always confronting people for being way too hasty. And back in the ancient world, the Chaldeans were, were a, a nation that loved speed, and they loved the speed of war, and they would quickly race throughout the nations, defeating people who were in their path. And Habakkuk is, th- is thinking, this is not good. <laughs> like, I know about these people. This is, a, this is not a good situation, but it gets worse. God says they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, God says they have no moral compass. You think Israel has a moral compass in the Ten Commandments, and, and they're, they're neglecting those Ten Commandments? Well, guess what? The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they have no moral compass. And when they go through the land and they defeat their enemies, it's not like there's some transcendent moral value. There's no morality, no ethics. And now what God says would have inspired great fear. He says their horses are swifter than leopards, leopards, leopards more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. You notice how God is giving him figures of speech that would incite fear, like an evening wolf. I don't know if you've ever been hiking and you you hear the wolves in the wilderness. Maybe you see the eyes around the ring of the fire and it inspires fear. The poetry that God is using 
inspires fear, and it gets even worse than that. They come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Here Habakkuk is hoping for revival, and God just revealed that there was going to be war. And here's the thing that hit Habakkuk like a sledgehammer. When it says they pile up earth and take it, what God is saying is that Jerusalem is going to be defeated by a siege. The the Babylonians are going to come and lay siege to Jerusalem. That is a worst-case scenario. Because in the ancient world, when you laid siege to a city, you essentially starved them out. And God is saying, Habakkuk, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are going to come against Jerusalem and they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem and they are going to starve you out. Habakkuk thought there might be a surprise solution. Instead, God reveals a worst case scenario. And it says in in Habakkuk chapter 3 that Habakkuk is trembling. I don't know if you've ever had a a bout with anxiety or an anxiety attack, and you're trembling. You're shaking, because from a bodily standpoint, you can't handle the anxiety that's coming over you. It says later on in the book of Habakkuk that his lips are trembling or quivering. You know what it's like when you start to cry, and your bottom jaw begins to quiver before you start to cry. That's exactly what Habakkuk is describing. Here's the great, powerful prophet shaking with anxiety, and he is beginning to cry. Now, let me just briefly bring this into our day. We live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, things happen. Painful things, bad things. Sometimes we fall prey to natural disasters. Sometimes we fall prey to domestic terrorism. There are followers of Christ who fall prey to international terrorism in other places. This is a fallen world and things happen. Hard things happen. Markets go south. An economy crashes. Uh, A city gets wiped out in a tornado. We live in a fallen world and in a fallen world sometimes there are worst case scenarios and even faithful followers of Jesus encounter those worst case scenarios. And that's exactly what God is setting up for Habakkuk. And so historically, this happened. Um, Nebuchadnezzar the Great comes against Jerusalem in three successive waves, one in 605 BC, one in 597 BC, and one in 586 BC. The most devastating of those three waves was the one in 597 BC, where they laid siege to the city, and it was sacked, but only after people starved and resorted to horrible things. What's interesting is that the uh, archeological evidence for these three attacks um, are progressively being discovered. Uh, Just about a month ago, archeologists uh, said that they found evidence of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem as told in the Bible. And the article said this, archeologists excavating Mount Zion in Jerusalem have uncovered evidence of the Babylonian conquest of the city appearing to confirm the biblical account of its destruction. Like that was a month ago that 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 came out, maybe a month and a half. This is a big deal, and Habakkuk is is going to encounter this. So what is is God going to tell Habakkuk to encourage him? 
Well, what God says is uh, Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous one will live by his faith. This is an interesting Old Testament verse. It's not the most quoted of all the Old Testament verses, but it's quoted very strategically in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. Basically, God is saying, Habakkuk, look, no matter what happens, you have to live by faith. If the worst takes place, it's important for you to go back and live in a moment-by-moment dependence upon God. And so here's the essential thing that, that God is promising Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. No matter what happens in life, even if the worst happens, faithful followers of Jesus can survive and even thrive through their moment-by-moment walk of faith. Well, let's see how Habakkuk responded to the worst-case scenario. What, what did he do? Well, Habakkuk's response is an astonishing commitment to exercise future faith. Like, you know, when you start catastrophizing about things, you are not exercising future faith. You're exercising an anxiety which you anticipate stretching on into the future. Habakkuk exercises a stunning level of future faith. Notice what he says in chapter 3. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, or the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, or the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. We've got to pause there for a second. I didn't finish that sentence. We've got to pause there for a second. What is he just describing there? He's describing the ancient equivalent of a worst-case scenario. And he's going from the least terrible to the most terrible. Like if your, if your figs failed, that's not the end of the world. That was like the equivalent of dessert. You know, it's like, it's like saying, I, I can't get my, my scone and my latte at Starbucks. Okay, you may think that's like a necessity, but yeah, it's not really a necessity. That's the figs. And then he talks about the, the, the vines. If you don't have your wine, that's not the end of the world. But it, it is going to limit your joy according to the ancient standards of, of joy. If the olive oil fail, that's like, okay, now we have no fuel for our lamps. That was a necessity. If the grains failed, that means I have no food. If the sheep fail, that means I have no clothing. If the cattle fail, that means I have no machinery to operate the land. And so if we were to take it up into, into our day, we would say the figs picture my daily pleasures, those being removed. The vines might picture my coffee and my tea no longer being available. The olive oil means I can't put gas in my car. The grain means the food supply is dwindling fast. The sheep means I don't have the clothing I need. And the cattle means I no longer have the essential machines that I need. He is describing a worst case scenario. So what is the future faith? He says, yet I will, what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. That is a statement about gratitude. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Hebrew word alaz is commonly used to mean exalt, and it means to feel gratefully triumphant. Even if the worst case scenario happens to me, yet I am going to be gratefully triumphant. In fact, he's making a choice. I will choose right now that if this happens, I will be gratefully triumphant. And it's not gratitude because of the bad things. It's gratitude because of the God 
who is going to sustain me in my worst case scenario. And so notice, notice how he depicts this. He says, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's feet, and he makes me tread in my high places. It's a beautiful figure of speech. Many of you um, know what mountain goats look like. It's a little hard to see on the screens there. But mountain goats have this incredible ability to rise above the circumstances. Uh, have you ever um, seen a mountain goat do that? Uh, like, that's amazing. And the only person I know of who even gets close to the mountain goat is Alex Hanold, who summited El Capitan with no ropes. Most of us can't do that. Most of us can't do what the mountain goat does. But what Habakkuk is saying is that God is going to empower me to be like that mountain goat and to live in a high place even though the worst has taken place in my life. That's Habakkuk's response. Now, now we want to switch to Jeremiah's response because Jeremiah is the prophet who actually went through this. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Jeremiah is a major prophet. Jeremiah wrote two books, Jeremiah and Lamentations. And Lamentations is a series of, of five poems, and it records what life was like after the Babylonians destroyed the city. And Jeremiah's response is this. His response in the crux of the disaster is, I'm going to have hope in God leading to a sense of gratitude. So you may remember um, what happens in Oklahoma sometimes, in Kansas, when the tornadoes come through. Here's what happened to Greensburg, Kansas. Everything completely destroyed. If you're thinking about what Jeremiah was going through, imagine Greensburg, Kansas. Or think about what happened in Marsh Harbor, Bahamas, after the recent hurricane. Everything completely destroyed. That's worst case scenario. That's what Jeremiah is describing poetically in the book of Lamentations. So Jeremiah says, I remember God, my affliction and my wanderings. He's literally wandering around the city of Jerusalem in ruins, the smoke still rising up, wandering around thinking, what in the world just happened to us. This is my worst case scenario. Remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. He remembers the violence. He remembers the killing. He remembers the blood that was there in the streets. People were walking around dazed and, and confused. What does Jeremiah do? He chooses gratitude. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. See how those verses are bookended by hope? He's talking about hope leading to gratitude. I'm going to choose hope. And in that place of hope, I am going to be grateful. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you had hope and therefore could be grateful in the space of that hope? I can think of a simple time about a year ago. I had a big blowout in my car. I was going from Tulsa back up to Bartlesville. Had a big, big blowout in one of the tires of my car. I mean, I had, I had nothing in that tire. I immediately pull over. 
and I called AAA. AAA said, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll be there with, within the hour. And get on our app, and you can see where we are relative to your car. I thought, that's kind of cool. Okay, great, I'll do that. And so for the next uh, 45 minutes or so, I'm periodically looking at my app, and I see this guy coming up, and I have hope. I'm not calling him every 10 minutes. Are you, are you coming? How, how far away are you? I have hope because I, I see that he's there. And you know, when he's about a minute away, I think, all right, Lord, thank you. <laughs> this is great. I'm going to get home on time. And this is, this is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, is, is saying, I have a hope that leads to gratitude. The hope is a hope in not the circumstances changing, but a hope in the fact that God is still God. And he's actively calling this to mind. And what I love about this is that what he's, he, he's saying is that, God, you are my portion. You are my everything. My hope is not in a set of circumstances that will change. My hope is in you, the God who is sovereign over those circumstances. So that's the story. The story is two prophets encountering a worst-case scenario, and they choose gratitude. So let's, let's probe the big idea. How do, you, how do you connect with God in real gratitude situations when you face a worst-case scenario? Well, here's, here's the, the main idea. In a worst-case scenario, your gratitude is going to come from two sources. First, it's going to come from God's supernatural grace in the moment. Remember Corey Ten Boom? Corey, Corey Ten Boom was the, was the concentration camp survivor. And uh, here's, here's, a, here's a picture of Corey Ten Boom. And Corey Ten Boom thought, I, I could never go through what people go through like in a concentration camp. I could never do that. And uh, her father was, was very helpful for her. He says, you know, Corey, when you get on a train, when do you buy the ticket? This is back, you know, 70 years ago. When do you buy the ticket? She said, right before you step on the train. And her father said, that, that's when God gives you the grace to handle a worst-case scenario, right before it happens. You, can, you could be sitting here today and say, I don't have the faith to endure a worst-case scenario. That's okay, because what God loves to do is grant you that in that specific moment. But there's a, a, another way that you get gratitude in, in, uh, in a worst-case scenario, is your disciplines of gratitude in the past contribute to that. So if you were somebody in the habit of, of showing, of, of communicating gratitude toward God, like day in, day out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, then if a worst case scenario took place in your life, you would default to that habit. So gratitude in a worst case scenario comes from those two, two sources, from God's supernatural grace in the moment and from your disciplines of gratitude in the past. And that's why Corey Ten Boom could not only survive in the concentration camp, but because of the concentration camp, she then began to thrive in the years and the years after. Notice, notice what, Jeremiah, what Jeremiah says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear his yoke in his youth. What he's talking about are the habits of gratitude. If you will consistently exercise gratitude in the present, you will have that default response to God in an emergency. 
that allows you to be receptive to a supernatural grace when you, when you most need it. So let's think about some real-life examples where a worst-case scenario happened and people found the grace to move on. Think back to the horrible genocide that took place in Rwanda. In the aftermath of that genocide, Chuck Colson's prison fellowship went down there and they began to create reconciliation villages. And the pictures that I'm about to show you all feature two people who are on opposite sides of this conflict. Remember, 800,000 people were killed in that genocide. 800,000 people. People's lives were completely shattered and broken and destroyed. And when Prison Fellowship came back down there, they came down with intent to foster a reconciliation between those two opposing groups. And so these pictures are pictures of people who uh, reconciled. So in each of these pictures, it is the man who killed the husband of the woman in the picture, or maybe killed his children and destroyed his house. And there's reconciliation between these two. Another picture. That woman's husband was killed by that, that man. There was a reconciliation that took place. Here's another picture. That woman's husband was killed by that man. Reconciliation took place. Another picture. Woman's husband was killed and her family was killed by that man. How, how could a reconciliation take place where two people could be in the same room? Well, one of the things Prison Fellowship wanted to do was create an environment where a Christ-centered reconciliation could take place. And in each of these stories, there are wonderful, amazing stories of God breaking through and doing a supernatural healing. Incredible. Here's another example. Here's a guy named Casey Diaz. I mentioned him to him a number of, number of months ago. He was a a gang member who was as bad as he could possibly be in prison for murder and dozens of other horrible things. He was in solitary confinement for three years. And he saw this vision of Jesus playing on the wall of his solitary cell. And it, 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 a vision of Jesus and a vision of his life, this movie of his life was taking place, and he saw how bad he was. And then he saw Jesus come, and Jesus dying on the cross for his sins. Casey Diaz, in some ways, was a living, walking, worst-case scenario. And through a miraculous set of circumstances, he not only got out of jail, but he, he went back to his neighborhood where he was a gang leader, and he started a church. And now he fosters reconciliation and change for people in, in that area. God loves, he loves to take worst case scenarios and transform them and, and move those around. Or here's a guy named Peter Jasek. Peter Jasek was a, a Christian aid worker from the Czech Republic. He was condemned to life in a Sudanese prison. Look, if I'm going to go to prison, I don't, don't want to ever go to prison. If I'm going to go to prison, I don't want to, the, the last place I want to be is Sudan. And he was in prison in, in a cell where there were a hundred people in that cell. When they found out he was a Christian, they taunted him mercilessly and they made him a slave. They, they made him their slave. And he was forced to clean the toilets by hand and other horrible things. And while he was doing all of that, he would recite verses that he had memorized. 
And God began to change his heart as he was reciting those verses, giving him some courage in the place of an incredibly dark environment. And then through a set of circumstances, he was, he was switched into a different cell and given a Bible, like a Bible in, in Sudan. And, and then he was switched to a different cell where he was able to teach the Bible. And there were some ISIS prisoners who came to Christ because of what Peter Jasek did. And one of those ISIS prisoners is on the left-hand side of the right-hand picture on the screen. God has the ability to take a worst-case scenario and transform it. And God wants us to encounter gratitude if that should happen to us. Maybe some of you are going through a worst-case scenario right now. It might be a, like the Rwandan pictures or a Sudanese prison, but it feels like a worst-case scenario to you. Here's God's challenge to you. God's challenge is, will you express gratitude in the midst of your worst-case scenario? because of the goodness of God. So here's the big idea again. <clears throat> In a worst-case scenario, gratitude is your pathway to a loving fellowship with a good God who sustains you now and on into the future. And the faith to do this will come through God's supernatural grace in the moment and your disciplines of gratitude in the past. So let's look at some takeaways, some things to do before, during, and after a worst-case scenario. First of all, before. Stop catastrophizing. Stop doing that. I will tell you, I am a big catastrophizer. And so, you know, when we go on trips, usually I take a fairly large suitcase and I always have extra things in the suitcase. And it's not because I was an Eagle Scout and I like to be prepared. It's because I want to make sure I have what I need in case something happens. Cindy's always, always saying to me, hey, Rod, did you bring such and such? I said, yeah, I've got it. Really? Yes. Uh, Rod, did, did, you bring, did you bring this? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got one. I've got one. And, and I would say, for those of you who uh, are prone to catastrophizing, stop doing it. Easier said than done, right? Because it's like some people say, I, I, I can't stop doing it. it. I will tell you, it is a learned habit. Catastrophizing is a learned habit that allows you to stay in control. I love uh, the works of Brene Brown. Brene Brown has written a whole bunch of things, and she is, uh, she's a wonderful writer. And uh, she said at one point that she was on a date with her husband, and they were coming back home, and she had this thought, what if, what if terrorists are hiding in the bushes, and they're going to kill us while we open the door and greet our kids? She said, that, like, that is a ridiculous thing. Why would I think about that? But she was seized up by that for long enough that she warned her husband to stay away from the bushes. Now, I know that some of you think that's really weird, and others of you think, hmm, I've done things like that. What I'm saying is, catastrophizing is a way of trying to stay in control. And it's really important that you address that bad mental habit in your life. Here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is expect God's short-term surprise solution. Expect God's short-term surprise solution. Many times, God will give you, in your worst-case scenario, a short-term surprise solution that sustains you through the really hard times. 
So to, to give you uh, an example of Jeremiah's case, you know, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to again. They're new when? Every morning. <laughs> what, what God is promising you in your worst case scenario is he will give you a short-term surprise solution that will sustain you. So here's a guy named Merrill, Rom Merrill Womack. Merrill Womack was flying in his private plane in Oregon, and his plane went down and crashed, and he should have died, but instead he got third-degree burns over his face and his hands. He was completely disfigured. Face was gone. And this was many years ago, so the surgeries were much slower and much more laborious. And after one of the surgeries, his face was, was so horribly disfigured that he said, I, I, I was going to commit suicide. The, the shame of having a disfigured face was too much for me. I was going to commit suicide. And then came the short-term surprise solution. Somebody knocked on the door, and it was another couple. And they came in, and they weren't shocked by his face, nor did they act awkwardly around him. Instead, they acted very naturally. And he said, for that space of two or three hours, I felt like a normal human being again. And I was, I was myself. I looked in the mirror, my, my, my bad face was still there, but for that two or three hours, I was, I was myself. And I could go, go on for another several days. If you're in a worst case scenario, God will often engineer a short-term surprise solution that will allow you to have his, his new every morning mercies. And then a, a third takeaway is after the worst case scenario, go public and tell your story. Um, many of you know I, I, just, I just read and read and read and read all the time. I love, I love devouring books. Um, I love talking to people who devour books because I love reading more books that are interesting. And a while back, I was looking at the kind of books that I, that I read, and I tend to read books of people who have gone through a really rough situation, seen God's grace in that situation, come through the other side, and now they're doing really well. Those books sometimes become bestsellers. And the reason why is because we who have not encountered a worst-case scenario get encouraged by people who have, and have come through the other side and they have new character. And that will happen to you if, and I hope it doesn't, but if you go through a worst case scenario, I will tell you that you have a story to tell and that story needs to come out. So what I so appreciate about Krista's story is that Krista went through a really devastating thing, really devastating. Some would call it a worst case scenario. And yet God in his grace came to her through the body of Christ, God in his grace came to her in such a way that she encountered a healing, a newness. And God in his grace has given her a story, and that story now is a story that is encouraging other people who are going through hard and difficult times. And if you have gone through a worst-case scenario, please don't be shy about telling your story. Tell it often. Tell it well, because it's going to be a story about God's power even in your really hard, really difficult situation. I have a friend who went through a worst-case scenario in his marriage. And I can remember talking to this friend, and uh, life was horrible. It was one day at a time, one step at a time, sometimes one moment at a time. And that was over 10 years ago.
And now he tells me, you know, that worst case scenario was bad. He doesn't use the worst case scenario language, but that was, that was a bad time. But you know what? I can say today that I'm glad it happened. Don't want to go through it again, but I'm glad it happened. Because there was something that took place transformative, transformative inside me that could not have happened had I not gone through that. I'm glad it happened. And now he's telling a story. And his story is now a story of healing. God redeeming that.